Web 2.0. Innovation. Trend. Collaboration. Software. Metadata. Got the world turning as fast as it can? Hear how technology can help, legally speaking, with two of the top legal technology experts, authors, and lawyers, Dennis Kennedy and Tom Mile. Welcome to the Kennedy Mile Report here on the Legal Talk Network. And welcome to episode 220 of the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Dennis Kennedy in Ann Arbor. And I'm Tom Mile in Dallas. Before we get started, we'd like to thank our sponsors. First of all, we want to say thank you to Text Expander for sponsoring our show. Communicate smarter with Text Expander. Gather, perfect, and share your knowledge. Recall your best words instantly and repeatedly. Learn more at textexpander.com forward slash podcast. And we'd also like to thank ServeNow, a nationwide network of trusted, pre-screened process servers. Work with the most professional process servers who have experience with high-volume serves, embrace technology, and understand the litigation process. Visit servenow.com to learn more. In our last episode, we took a look at the hype around technologies these days, how to separate technology fantasy from technology reality, and something known as the Gardner Hype Cycle. In this episode, we want to discuss the topic of an upcoming presentation Tom and I will be doing live at the 2018 College of Law Practice Management Futures Institute in Boston at the end of October. Our session is called Security as a Team Sport, and we'll focus on how the use of collaboration tools will dramatically impact how you handle cybersecurity and uh, some ways you can think about that and uh, protect yourself. Tom? What's all on our agenda for this episode? Well, Dennis, in this edition of the Kennedy Mall Report, we will indeed be looking at how the use of collaboration tools can impact your approach to cybersecurity. In our second segment, we'll talk about the ever-increasing problem of link rot on the internet. And as usual, we'll finish up with our parting shots, that one tip website or observation that you can start to use the second that this podcast is over. But first up, security as a team sport or is a team sport. Either one, that's what we want to talk about today. I, I know I see more than ever these days um, how to protect myself uh, and my company's information from hackers and other cybersecurity threats, but it's always positioned as only you can protect yourself or you need to pay attention to all of this. What we don't see enough of, and frankly, I until we came up with the idea for this podcast and this speech, I'm not sure I saw any of, is the realization that the amount of collaboration that people are doing these days creates all kinds of security risk, um, and that we also ought to be looking at the ways we work together when understanding how to protect ourselves, um, how to protect our information. I guess, Dennis, why do you think that people may underappreciate this topic? Well, I see two reasons. One, I think that security is hard enough for most people without adding a couple of layers of, of difficulty. So I think you can preach to people, you can give them all kinds of suggestions about keeping their passwords safe, using password managers, updating their software, uh, all those sorts of things. And we know, we're just looking over the past however many years, it, it's, it's sort of rare to find somebody who's really up to speed on 
that and does it well, even in the, the legal profession. So the second thing is people are starting to use more of the collaboration tools, the cloud uh, applications, uh, cloud services, and you're working with other people, sometimes many other people. So the security that if you focus on yourself, you don't take into account the security practices of somebody else. And depending on the, the rights of access, the authority uh, that they have, what they can do with, with data that's in a, a collaboration system, then their poor security uh, practice can really have an impact on on you. So I, I think that's why people underappreciated time. It's both it's difficult in the first sense, and then we've just added multiple layers to it once we start to collaborate. I think so. I'm going to come back to kind of the way I introduced it by by saying that I think when the average person thinks about security, I think it's natural to start first by thinking of ourselves. Or I guess for those of us who actually do think about security, we I should not assume that everybody's thinking about security, but it's how am I protected? How is my stuff being protected? Um, and we think of the basics. Most people, I would guess, think of the basics. Passwords, antivirus, firewalls, those types of ways to protect myself. For those, I think, who work in larger firms, I think, my guess is, it's easy to get complacent because I've had, it's sort of the same attitude as lawyers in big firms who really don't pay attention to technology. They say things like, IT takes care of it for me. They take care of the security. I don't have to worry about anything. I'm guessing that that is a common attitude that would be found in most law firm environments. But still, I think if you're if you're thinking about security, I think you're hopefully realizing that you shouldn't click on that link in an email that you don't recognize or that you shouldn't plug that USB drive in without having IT check it out. If you don't know where that, that USB drive, because if you're not, you're affecting everyone else. And so I think that once, once you start thinking beyond yourself and thinking with others, and, and I think this kind of leads us into the collaboration space, then it starts to give you, it requires you to think about other people and how what you do or how what others do affects security of the whole. Yeah, and, and so I, I, th I think in, in, as in all things, we don't really live in isolation. So I, I think about that, that broken windows theory of, policing that people talk a lot a lot about and so if in my neighborhood most everybody's doing a great job and we have home security and we have alarms and we have lights and stuff like that but one place doesn't and it's vacant and it's run down and the windows are broken if that's not taken care of suddenly the level of danger and risk in the whole community goes up dramatically. And so I, I think in the collaboration area, you, you have a similar notion. So you can be doing a great job and then you, somebody's using the one, two, three, four, five, six password, or, you know, they haven't updated things or they, you know, allow access to things that uh, should be locked down. It just dramatically increases the risk for everybody else in that ecosystem. Right. And I think that it's it's not just that, but I think that when it comes to actually collaborating, I would say that security for internal collaboration is probably better than security for external collaboration. And I'm guessing that working in a law firm that has dedicated IT, um, I think you should hope that to the extent that you are collaborating with others in your organization, that security has been considered 
for those collaboration efforts. If it's not being considered, and, and we're going to talk about, and I'm going to talk about some of the ways that, it, that sometimes that fails, then it ought to be. But where I really start to think we see things happen is not necessarily just the broken windows house, but, you know, the nice house down the way who decides they like the next door neighbors and they want to start doing things together. Um, that well-meaning collaborations that take place outside of the firewall, maybe you and co-counsel decide to collaborate on trial documents together. Or your client invites you to a file sharing site so you can see their files. Without involving IT in that decision, then you become the weakest link. I guess maybe you have the broken windows or whatever. I, I don't think that it's an intentional thing. I think that, that you really are well-meaning. You just want to get stuff done, but you're not really thinking about all of the implications when you start to collaborate with, uh, with somebody from outside the firm. Yeah, I think that in a lot of ways, security is uh, interestingly a lot like uh, looking at infectious, the spread of infectious disease, you know, so who you have in contact with, how you have that contact, how viruses, illnesses are spread. There's similar notion clearly in security, and I think it gets amplified in the collaboration setting. And in a way, I mean, Tom, it's, it's kind of weird that we, we use this word so often on the podcast, over the years, but I think there is this, just this notion of hygiene that you, there are some things that you want to do to protect yourself. And when you're in in the collaboration world, you almost want to have that checklist to say, okay, what are the things I need to do? And, and some of them are pretty basic. Don't use the same password as, as I use on another site. You know, really understand what the access rights are that you're giving to people and, and have a good understanding of that. But kind of think how those systems work together and then whether, you know, what you're storing inside and outside the firewall and, and then just kind of really having some rigor to that because I think everything that you do in terms of prevention is is going to pay off because you, as Tom said, it's it's a cliche, but it, it's really the right metaphor of this, that you become the weakest link in the chain. Right. I kind of wanted to step back and talk about the different ways that people can collaborate, I guess, both internally and externally that can lead to security risks. And, and I sort of think of these in four different categories of collaboration. Um, I've been kind of thinking a little bit differently about this lately. And I think that there are, it kind of breaks down among these four ways in my mind. One is collaboration of um, what I would call store and sync, using tools like Dropbox or Box or Google Drive or OneDrive to store and share documents and synchronize documents across multiple devices. That's one way that people are collaborating. Creation, um, using Google Docs or Office Online or OneNote, um, or you know, even there are lots of uh, our creative uh, content creation things that Adobe has put together where you can collaborate online on creating all sorts of things. Um, but, but those tools that you can actually all contribute to creating a document or a presentation or something, some other type of substantive content. There are, uh, I guess, collaborative tools that help you manage 
content. Uh, and I think of things like SharePoint, things that create structured repositories. They're not quite the same as Box and Dropbox because they're smarter. They can do more things. They can be more like a file management system um, uh, than these other can be, but they're more about file management than file sharing. And then finally, and sort of I, this sort of goes over everything, is collaboration by communication. You know, using tools like Slack or Microsoft Teams or using Skype or other type of instant messaging programs or, or even email, I suppose, is one of those couple of ways to look at them. And then once you look at the things that you're collaborating on and the, the, the ways that you are wanting, I think you need to ask yourself some of these questions. And let me let me pause for a second before I go on because I've been talking for a while. Anything I'm missing there, Dennis? Is, there, is that kind of how at least we think of it? Would you like to add to anything there about how we would, before I start talking kind of about my thoughts about the security options, what are your thoughts on that? I think that's a really good set of categories. And then I, but I, I do want to, to make sure we, we emphasize that law firms in particular have been targets and it's, it's pretty well known or should be well known that the FBI has come to major law firms in the U.S. and warned them over the last, uh, I don't know, maybe five years about how they are definitely, law firms are definitely a target and they're seen as, as the weak link to get corporate data and sometimes personal data. So I think that as you think through your categories, I mean, sometimes say, people say, oh, we're not carrying, holding that much valuable stuff. But if you think through the different categories um, that you are collaborating, you may find that you have uh, a lot more exposure than you think. I think that's right. I think that you're absolutely right about law firms becoming more of a target. And I think I would definitely recommend for those of you who aren't already listening to Sharon Nelson and John Simic's Digital Detectives podcast, take a listen to that because they're routinely talking about the dangers to law firms from a security standpoint. I think that when it comes to understanding, I kind of wanted to switch now, Dennis, and kind of talk about some of the, you started to talk about some of the practical things to do. I kind of want to talk about more high level approaches to security when you're looking at collaboration tools. And I think it really comes down to three or four different areas that you need to consider. I, I think you you hit on one of them, but I'm going to expand on a little bit. One of them is access rights um, and, and who has access. Um, are there different layers of access to the tool? Can some people only see some things based on their role? Do you have a collaborative area where an expert witness needs to see certain types of documents but can't see all the client confidential information. Do collaborators have the ability to invite people in without approval? That's a huge security risk is if they have the ability to either share with or invite other people in who may not have authorization to, to come in. Um, do these access levels make it easy to share information? What I find in, in my work is that um, when access or when collaboration is restricted, um, it may make things more secure, but it also discourages sharing, which really defeats the purpose. So you want to make sure the security isn't so strict that it loses the purpose or the, or the benefit of the collaboration. Um, I think if you don't find a way to make it easy or make it simple for them, or if you aren't able to grant exceptions in certain cases or make it reasonable, um, people are going to find a way around those access restrictions. Um, the second thing, authorization. Um, you know, strong passwords, strong uh, multi-factor authentication where it's necessary, being able to prove that the person who is trying to get in is actually who is entitled to get in. And then finally, something that doesn't get 
really considered very much, but I'll talk about it on the back end, is audit, is actually looking at the collaboration tools. Good collaboration tools have the possibility or the capability of providing an audit trail to help you detect risky activity, to see are people sharing things, what are people doing, so that you can maybe identify risky behavior and nip it in the bud or learn a way around it or fix the problem. Um, And so one thing that I don't see people doing that often is actually saying, all right, how are we using this tool and are there ways that we can get better about the way that we use it? Those are kind of my initial thoughts about things that need to be considered before or with any collaboration tool that you're using. Anything I'm missing there, Dennis? No, I I think there, I I would say there is a notion because I I know that I do this and I think you probably do this because I think we've talked about it, is that sometimes people really lock something down and you find out that you can't print something and you just want to read something or you can't copy something and they think they've locked everything down. Sometimes this happens in PDFs as, as well. I know that you and I did something recently on on that, Tom, yes. which could turn into a parting shot one day, uh, a great little tip on how to to get into PDFs that are locked. But, you know, basically, if, if somebody sends me something that I can't print, um, I can use something like Snagit and do screenshots and print those. So, I mean, it's you, you kind of need to think about what the users might want to do. There are some new tools out there. They're not new, but there's more focus on this, uh, the USB keys, uh, what's known as the UBYUBI key, which is a a great way to do multi-factor authentication. That can be helpful. And then, Tom, I think you just raised a really great point about... uh, it's partially audit, but it's the monitoring. So you're looking for, are there ways that you can look for unusual behaviors, look for anomalies, unusual traffic that will tip you off to something going on in the network? In the cloud world, you're kind of relying on the the host of the service to be doing all that. And that is one of the benefits of a cloud-based tool. But if you're not, if you're not really using that, then there could be things going on that you don't know about that you could have caught earlier. And then I think there's uh, the other big hole, Tom, is when people leave, right? People forget to take, there's all these different places you don't remove them as users. And that opens up uh, security risks as well. Yep, it sure does. I think that one of the other pieces that we're missing, and and briefly, I'll talk about this as a as kind of a what we do initially is communicating with your collaborators. You know, I know it's important to bring everybody that you're collaborating with up to your standard or what your standard needs to be. And I think that 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 requires some discussion or some consideration or whatever it is at the beginning to say, all right, how are we going to do this? How are we going to make sure that everything is secure? I will say every engagement I enter into with a client these days, one of the first conversations we have is how are we going to share information? Uh, We have a secure file sharing technology that we use that we feel very comfortable with. Um, But sometimes our clients have their own cybersecurity protocols in place, and they can't send information outside the company to independent consultants. They've got to keep it themselves. And so we have an in-depth discussion about how we're going to do that, who's going to access what, what tools are we going to use. I'm waiting on receiving a token from one client so that I can access their website. I will say, though, that when it becomes ridiculous, when it becomes 
becomes so hard to do that it's not worth it. It really does put a strain on productivity. It puts a strain on the working relationship. Um, and so it's got to be something that makes sense that we get that is not too onerous, but still is able to protect things. And I, I think you're right. I think that the hesitation is let's lock things down as much as possible. And when you lock that PDF so that it can't be modified or edited or anything, I mean, there are certain things you don't want to be able to modify, but my gosh, I downloaded a copy of the California Consumer Privacy Act, and I just wanted to be able to highlight portions of it so I could take notes and annotate the document. And it wouldn't even let me do that. It wouldn't let me do any of that to it, which I think is just absurd. Um, it, when you take that level of security, you really have a productivity problem on the back end. So I think those, you know, communication and making it easy for people are kind of my two biggest tips for helping make security an easy thing uh, with collaborators. Dennis, what about you? Yeah, I mean, I think the bringing people up to your your level of security requirement is really difficult. And I think uh, when you're living in the HIPAA world or the PCI world, in the financial world, there are some external factors that require people to behave in certain ways. And that can be a benefit. Um, there are also a couple areas that people don't think enough about. And so it could be that there are NDAs in place where putting information up into a cloud service could be a violation of the NDA, uh, and you need some clarification of right. that. And, uh, you know, so there are a number of things out there you have to think through. So to go back to the initial question, it's like, God, the security is hard enough, you know, in my home, you know, with the one on one device, let alone saying, oh, my God, I live in this world. It's all interconnected with all these different platforms and devices and I can use anywhere. And it's just, it's the trade-off that we make. And we can be much smarter about it we can do a better job. It's just something that needs to get on the radar and, and there are some good approaches you can take and then kind of think of the internet as an ecosystem that you live in and that you need to be responsible in. I think that's, that's a really big thing. Then I think there's a communication, not just with your sort of direct partners, but you're seeing more and more of the case, especially with the big institutions, that there is sharing and collaboration on security among the those institutions and in the FBI and, and others with as we have these zero day attacks and, and other really sophisticated things going on that the sharing uh, that you find about security and issues and, uh, you know, malware that's out there and those sorts of things can be really helpful. So if you, you know, learn of something that's a problem in, a, uh, say, a cloud-based service collaboration tool, I think it's really important to notify the other people. Not, not that you have an obligation, you know, I don't think of it as a legal obligation, so there's like some requirement, but I just think it's a good practice to say, hey, we, we learned of this, here's here's a notice about this, wanted to make sure that you you saw that. I think, I think that can be helpful. So there's a notion of collaboration uh, to security that's, you know, going on in the background these days, it's, it's pretty significant. Yep, there's a lot to digest here, a lot that we're still unpacking and as we get ready for our presentation in October. So uh, stay tuned. We might have more to offer in a future episode of the podcast. And before we move on to our next segment, let's take a break for a message from our sponsors. Text Expander is a productivity multiplier. 
Employers love Text Expander because with a short abbreviation or search while typing, Text Expander can produce cover emails for invoices or signing instructions, insert templates for consistent meeting notes, perform accurate date math on the fly, and instantly present things you retype all the time. Text Expander runs on Macs, iPhones, iPads, and Windows and works in any application. Visit textexpander.com slash podcast for 20% off your first year. Looking for a process server you can trust? ServeNow.com is a nationwide network of local pre-screened process servers. ServeNow works with the most professional process servers in the industry. Connecting your firm with process servers who embrace technology, have experience with high-volume serves, and understand the litigation process and rules of properly effectuating service. Find a pre-screened process server today. Visit www.servenow.com. And now let's get back to the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy. I recently went to send a link to the first article I wrote on estate planning for digital assets, which I probably wrote maybe eight to 10 years ago. So it was in a major legal publication and had been online. So I had the URL and I clicked on it uh, just to make sure it was live. And not only did the URL not take me back to the article, I couldn't even find the article on the site anymore using any search tool. Everything was dead. Also, I couldn't find uh, other articles I had written. So that was problematic to me because I'd promised somebody I'd send a link to this article. So fortunately, I had kept the last draft that I had and sent that on to the person who made the request. But the final version that was published, poof, vanished. I really never expected that Tom is, is an author. And I think it's another example of the growing problem known as, as link rot that uh, has always affected us, but it seems like it's uh, getting worse. Do you think it is actually getting worse these days? I do think it's getting worse. And I think that, unfortunately, unless there is some concerted effort to deal with it, I think it's just going to keep getting worse. I, I don't see any improvement in the near future. I, I was I, doing some research for this and noticed that even as long, uh, late as five years ago, there was a, a, a magazine called BMC Bioinformatics, and they had a study there where they analyzed 15,000 links from a scientific citation index and found that the median lifespan of the web pages in that index was 9.3 years, and then poof, they went away. They were gone. Then just a year later, in 2014, Harvard Law School actually did a study with Larry Lessig and a couple of others um, that found that 50% of the URL in the U.S. Supreme Court opinions no longer linked to the original information, um, and that in legal journals uh, that were published between, I think it was 1999 and 2011, um, 70% of those links no longer worked. So it is definitely a problem, and it is definitely widespread, but I think that to fix something like this, it's not enough, really, that web publishers resolve to do better. It's not, it's not enough that you and I say we're going to keep our blogs up in perpetuity. You know, the Harvard study pointed out, um, and the quote that I liked from it, that, that many people who produce content for the web are, quote, indifferent to the problems of posterity. 
end quote. And I see that as being, I don't expect that to change. I think that I would see that that level of indifference, we, we want to capture everything, but we don't care so much about whether it gets retained or kept. So I think it has to be a concerted effort. And probably as a result, and I can't believe I didn't really know about this, the folks at the Harvard Library Innovation Lab developed a, a service called PERMA.cc, um, which is a free service um, that has the goal of ending link rot. You just submit a link, they'll add it to their database, they will provide you with a permanent link that is pledged never to go bad. Everyday people, it's open to anybody. You, you can only submit about 10 links per month. If you work with a library, if you work with an archiving service, then you have unlimited access. You can, you can submit as many. I believe they have something like 750,000 links right now. I really like this idea, but like all services, and this is the concern I have, its success depends on its survival. It needs to be something that can live on in perpetuity. And, you know, perhaps future innovation labs can create an artificial intelligence that will manage the library and 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 help to to begin to end link rot. I just worry that those 750,000 links may be all there might be that'll be permanently in it and stuff will start to go away. Dennis, do you feel the same kind of despair I feel about how that is? Yeah, a little bit because there's a great left-hand, right-hand thing when you describe that effort by Harvard, we know that it's going on at the same time. They're taking down the servers that hosted some of the really important early blogs. And so that material may disappear. So, I mean, I used to do this thing where I used to do PDFs of my articles when they appeared on the web. So I at least had that locally. That sort of seems like overkill. I guess the best thing is the Internet Archive or the Wayback Machine to to try to find things. And so the importance of that project, I think, has really been illustrated. But as people go into these third-party publishing platforms like Medium and those sorts of things, if they if they all of a sudden stop, then we don't know what's happening to that content. So there is this notion that it does make sense even more to have your own blog, your own website, where you're keeping you're keeping everything because at least while you're you're alive and cognizant and willing to pay the bills for it, you know that it's there and and available. But uh, something to think about because you, you said, Tom, in scientific research, the thing about the Supreme Court. Uh, links and stuff, that's a really important issue that's going to sneak up on us if we're not careful. Now it's time for our parting shots, that one tip, website, or observation that you can use the second this podcast ends. Tom, take it away. So um, I'm going to, in the second podcast in a row, I'm going to have a gear tip. I have been trying out new different uh, gadgets and stuff, and my latest is the Surface Go. Uh, the Surface Go is Microsoft's, uh, I'm not sure what it wants to be. It's not really an iPad killer. Um, it might might be uh, intended for schools. Um, but what it really is, is it's a smaller version of the Surface tablet. Um, it's closer to an iPad form factor, but it um, it's a fully functioning Windows computer. And um, I've been using it for a while. I will say it's not powerful enough to be my daily driver. I'm never going to use it to do work on all the time, but I have full windows on it and I can access all the documents and, and all the applications that I can in full windows, which has kind of been my holy grail. I'll probably bring it to the law practice division meeting in October to use it as, as my walk around taking notes tool to have. Um, but it's an interesting device. I think it's really 
nice looking. It works well. If you're looking, I think the, the one thing that it suffers from is, or actually it suffers from a couple of things. Battery life could be better and it doesn't have the same app store that the iPad app store does or even that the Android Google Play store has. That's where I kind of was hoping that it would improve. I'm not saying no to that because it actually got some really pretty decent reviews. It's a nice thing if you're looking for a Windows device that's closer to the size and form factor of an iPad. It's not terribly expensive. It's only about five, $600 total to buy. You may have to buy some accessories along with it, but um, I'm enjoying it so far. The Surface Go. Dennis. I'm going with the free one this time, Tom. And so occasionally you'll do, especially a complex uh, Word document, that will, when you save it, you realize it's gigantic and it could have trouble sending as an attachment, things like that. So there are actually a couple things you can do to compress the size of Word files. And probably the classic one is to compress the photos and images in any Office document, whether it's Word or PowerPoint. But on the great How to Geek site, there was an article by Rob Woodgate called How to Reduce the Size of a Word Document. And it goes through a bunch of tips so that if you have a very large Word document, you can slim it down to a size that may be easier to send around to people. So very useful information. And so that wraps it up for this edition of the Kennedy Mile Report. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. You can find show notes for this episode at tkmreport.com. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or on the Legal Talk Network site, where you can find archives of all of our previous podcasts. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach out to us on LinkedIn or leave us a voicemail. Remember, we've got a voicemail for questions for our B segment. We love to get messages at 720-441-6820. So until the next podcast, I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy, and you've been listening to the Kennedy Mile Report, a podcast on legal technology with an internet focus. If you like what you heard today, please rate us in Apple Podcasts. We'll see you next time for another episode of the Kennedy Mile Report on the Legal Talk Network. Thanks for listening to the Kennedy Mile Report. Check out Dennis and Tom's book, The Lawyer's Guide to Collaboration Tools and Technologies, Smart Ways to Work Together, from ABA Books or Amazon. And join us every other week for another edition of the Kennedy Mile Report, only on the Legal Talk Network.